The next faculty person I met with was Dr. Kobley. To begin, we chatted about a case submitted by Dr. Stanley Smith. An 84-year-old patient with triple negative infiltrating ductal cancer that grew fairly rapidly over a period of six months to a size of 3.5 centimeters. Just decup breasts. It wasn't visible on a mammogram six months ago, but it is now. The mammogram from six months ago was mainly fatty replaced, and now she's got this pretty sizable lesion. MRI shows a second area of enhancement, four centimeters posterior to the main lesion in the same quadrant. Nothing on the MRI in terms of nodes looks pathologic. Do we know anything about the general health of the patient? She's healthy. And we don't know her nodal status. She just has, I guess, the primary, and the question would be, should you use neoadjuvant therapy now? Should you send her to surgery? I mean, we always get cases of people in their 80s with triple negative tumors because, you know, if they've got either ER or HER2, at least you have something you can do. But these older women with triple negative tumors are pretty problematic. Well, first what we'd like to understand is the risk of this patient recurring independent of her elderly status. And I would think that a sentinel lymph node biopsy in this patient would be helpful. I realize there's controversy in the neoadjuvant setting about whether you should do this before or after surgery, but particularly in this case, I think it would inform the patient's understanding of what her risk is of recurrence. This assumes that the patient has said to her physician, Doc, I'm perfectly healthy, I'm still golfing, and I want everything that you can possibly give me, even if it only provides me with 1% or 2% benefit. Well, the other thing is that, again, if she's otherwise healthy, is you know the issue of if she is going to have a recurrence or a problem with it being ER negative, it might be kind of soon, like in the right. next two, three years. Exactly. So maybe it won't affect her survival. It might affect her quality of life. It could. And, you know, it's all a matter of understanding what her attitude is, what her general health is, and then having a frank discussion with her. But without knowing her nodal status in this situation, I think it would be a much more difficult discussion. If you knew the sentinel node were negative, how would you be thinking it through? I would be less likely to recommend chemotherapy for her, either in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant situation. Right. Let me ask you about another patient that came in from Dr. Jennifer Gass. She has a 45-year-old woman who's had neoadjuvant chemotherapy. With Actually, she got dose-dense AC and then weekly Taxol times 12. And then she doesn't say you know what the pre-op or pre-neoadjuvant staging was, but at mastectomy, she had T1 and 2 disease. So really, this is just, I think the question is about the issue. What about the patient who's had anthracycline taxane neoadjuvant therapy, and in spite of that has significant tumor, either in the nodes or in the breast at surgery, and the fact that we know these women are at very high risk, what do you do about it? Are there clinical trial options? The ideal thing to do for this patient is to put her on a clinical trial, offer her a clinical trial. The NSABP has a study for such a situation looking at an angiogenesis inhibitor. There are no randomized data that help us understand exactly what to do with this patient. I think we would all agree that 
she has a bad prognosis, particularly if there's no hormone therapy to offer her. And I guess that they're looking at the oral agent sunitinib, which is being used in you know, GIST and renal cell cancer. Have you had any patients go on that? Or? Not yet. We're just opening it. It's going to be interesting to see. Even though it's an oral agent, they're looking at it as an, an adjuvant trial in renal cell. And the question is, how easy is it really to give? You know, the TKIs sometimes have problems when you try to give it. I think that they understood that when they designed the trial, and the dose that was originally used with sinitinib was 50, and this is 25 Hmm. milligrams per day. So hopefully it will be more tolerable, and that's certainly one of the things we'll find out from the study. Right. And, yeah, it would be interesting. I guess the idea there is that there's not a lot of excitement about looking at chemo I guess, in these patients, although sometimes do patients get chemo from oncologists in this situation? Sometimes they do. Such as maybe capecitamine, I've heard that. Exactly. What do you, how do you approach it? Well, I've had the frank discussion with the patients telling them we don't know what the answer is. We know it's a high-risk situation. And I actually do offer them the option of no further therapy versus CAPE until this NSABP study came along. What about the issue of the timing of sentinel node biopsies in patients who are getting neoadjuvant therapy? There's a lot of controversy about that. As a medical oncologist, kind of what's your preference? That's a really tough one. The advantage to doing the post-neoadjuvant sentinel lymph node biopsy is that many women will be converted to lymph node negative and therefore will be spared an axillary lymph node dissection. The disadvantage is that certain information that radiation oncologists might consider crucial, such as the number of nodes that were involved initially, is now gone. And so one, I suppose, would have to assume that the patient had multiple nodes at the baseline. Of course, I'm talking about a clinically negative node situation at baseline, and then would have to give her radiation therapy to node-bearing areas, whereas in the other situation, if she were node-negative, that might not be necessary. I've got a couple of cases from Dr. Candace Dyer from Warwick, Rhode Island. They were pretty interesting. One is a 55-year-old woman who has a 2-centimeter invasive ductal cancer, ER and PR positive, HER2 negative. The sentinel lymph node was negative in the OR but on final path, she's got a 0.6 centimeter met. So I guess one question would be, it's more of a surgical question, but I'm curious, again, from your perspective as an oncologist, would you want to see an axillary lymph node dissection in this patient? Well, that would be the right answer on the boards, <laughs> the surgical boards. That is the standard of care. There are algorithms that are available where one can look at primary tumor characteristics and sentinel node characteristics to predict the likelihood of further sentinel node involvement. We often run those algorithms for the patient. But I think that knowing the true status of the axilla would be very helpful in this situation. Because if she had no further nodes involved, this is the kind of patient for whom I would think about Oncotype as a tool Whereas if she had multiple nodes involved, I wouldn't. Interesting. So actually, turns out that this patient had an axillary lymph node dissection and had three of 12 positive nodes. Mm-hmm. So that was quite helpful. And then one of the nodes had an 8-millimeter extracapsular extension. 
So that's pretty different than being negative. Exactly. I'll tell you in a second what happened to her, but what would you be thinking about for a patient like that at that point? So now we're at still ER positive, HER2 negative, but now three positive nodes. Any interest, any way in doing an oncotype? And if the patient came to you and said, listen, I really, really don't want to get chemo. If I have to, I will. Would you consider an oncotype with three positive nodes? If this patient is young and healthy, as most 55-year-old young women are, (laughs) I would be more inclined to give her a third-generation chemotherapy regimen. That's exactly what she got. So she got ACT. And I guess just as an update to the surgeons in terms of where we are nowadays with chemo for adjuvant therapy of breast cancer, what's your take in terms of, you know, in the past, seems like the most common regimen was dose-dense AC paclitaxel. Do you think that's still the case? I think so. I think so, too. Actually, at our institution, we would have offered her the E5103 trial looking at Avastin. One thing that's good about bevacizumab isn't pretty much in general, it doesn't make people feel bad. You agree? For the most part. I mean, there are serious potential complications, proteinuria, hypertension, thrombosis, etc., But, I mean, what's your experience in terms of how they actually feel? They feel very good on it. The only sort of chronic chronic side effect that makes it a little different is that they all have nosebleeds. Hmm, All. I mean, I've heard about that. Pretty much. 99%. (laughs) And, I mean, I've heard of cases where it really was a problem. People had to get cauterized. Have you had that, or has that been more minor? I have had one patient who's had to get cauterized. Most of them, they just report that when they blow their nose, there's blood in it. So that's a little bit different from, for example, trastuzumab. That's true. I mean, if you were to say to most of these people, you know, how much does it bother you to have this problem? Would they say not at all, somewhat, or, you know, a fair amount? Well, in the context of the adjuvant trials, they're kind of happy because they think they're on the drug. Interesting. Right. It's placebo controlled. Huh. Other than that, how disturbing do you think it is? I don't think it's a biggie in the context of what they're dealing with overall. So we'll keep our fingers crossed about that. And then the other case that Dr. Dyer submitted was an 80-year-old woman in good health but with hypertension, well-controlled, whose status post-modified mastectomy for an 8-sonometer triple negative invasive lobular cancer with nine positive nodes. So there seems like to me there's a lot of breast cancer patients in their 80s, and there are often challenges to think through, particularly when you have to think about chemo. This lady's in good health, but she's 80. So Dr. Dyer wants to know, would you offer chemo in addition to chest wall axillary and supraclavicular radiation? Do I think that it's going to extend this woman's survival by more than a percent or so? No. But if she is healthy and she is motivated to do whatever she can to prevent a recurrence, which in this situation is going to be fairly likely in the not-too-distant future, then I could see giving her TC with growth factor support. And TC for the surgeons, I guess, is really a regimen that's being used a lot more, docetaxel and cyclophosphamide that U.S. Oncology has reported on, particularly in the lower-risk situation. But I hear a lot of people saying also TC in the older patient. Is it your take that they 
get through it better than the anthracycline regimens? Well, I wouldn't want to give an anthracycline to somebody who was 80 and had hypertension. Hmm. Yeah. What about quality of life again, TC versus the anthracycline C or AC? I think that AC is easier on patients than TC. Hmm. Having personally experienced this with my 74-year-old mother-in-law. Really? Where I really came to appreciate the alteration in taste that occurs. With TC? Yeah. Hmm. With taxotere in particular, it causes dysgeusia. Hmm. However, in the long term, there really isn't long-term toxicity that we're aware of assuming that you've made sure that this person has had a recent colonoscopy and doesn't have some GI lesion that's going to become a problem on taxotere. Hmm. And I guess we're seeing more docetaxel used also in HER2-positive situations. The TCH regimen is pretty commonly used now, again, without an anthracycline. How do you approach the selection of chemo with HER2-positive disease? Since Dennis Lehman presented his paper at San Antonio, I haven't used anything other than TCH for HER2-positive breast cancer. Interesting. And now, are you participating in the BETH study that the NSABP and the CRG are doing? Are you putting patients on that? Yes. So that's looking at TCH plus or minus bevacizumab, again, in the adjuvant setting. How has that gone in terms of talking about it to patients? And actually, have you had people go on it? Actually put my first patient on it about six weeks ago. Hmm. A young woman with 30 positive nodes. Wow. And I was really happy to have that trial available for her. I don't think it's a trial for everyone who's HER2 positive. If you run the risk estimates and you end up with a residual risk of 5 or 10%, that's not necessarily something that I would offer the patient. But for patients who are very high risk, it's a great study. It's interesting. That same strategy I heard from a lot of docs in terms of putting patients on that adjuvant BEV colon study we were talking about. You know, they sit down with somebody and they go, well, yeah, we can give you full FOX, but you're still going to have, whatever, 40% residual risk. You want to try something different. That's pretty appealing for a patient, I think. Yeah. I wish we could get more patients on these studies and get answers quicker. From the surgeon's point of view, the other one, it really jumps out to me as the NSAVP B40 study, the neoadjuvant study, and HER2 negative, where, again, they're looking at bevacizumab. What do you think about that study? I guess they're looking at different chemo regimens and the use of bevacizumab in the neoadjuvant setting, hopefully maybe looking at some translational work to see if they can figure out whether you can predict response. What do you think about that strategy? I think conceptually it's a wonderful strategy. But in terms of practice, I guess that's always tricky, getting people in a study that's that complicated. Well, there is a tendency to shy away from anthracyclines now in breast cancer, and that study does include anthracycline administration. Yeah, it's interesting how, in the medical oncology community, how anti-anthracyclines people have gotten. Right. Yeah, I know you're one of you're definitely one of them. Well, especially now for low risk patients, when you have a regimen that's nine anthracycline containing that's superior to AC. Right, that's the TC regimen. You know, I wanted to ask you getting into this issue of clinical trials because I'm always curious how they sort of play out when you talk to patients. And some of these patients that we're going to talk about tonight theoretically could go into the Taylor X study, looking at the oncotype, which has that kind of tricky randomization for the intermediate score tumors of chemo or not. Are you putting patients on that? Yes. How's that go? I think TaylorRx overall is going very well. When people fall in the lower risk of that intermediate risk group, 
it's tougher to recommend the randomization or for them to accept the randomization. The other thing is the age-old problem. Clinical trials that are randomized trials that involve something versus nothing are the hardest clinical trials on the planet to do, and yet they are among the most important clinical trials to understand the information from. So when I have patients who are eligible, I offer it. I would say maybe 20% of the time they accept that recommendation The other thing is that they're in a psychological situation where all of the decisions seem to have been taken away from them. You need surgery, you need X, Y, or Z, and now comes a time when they can make a decision, even though it may not be an informed decision. And so I think it's a control issue as well. It's really a tricky trial. I mean, as soon as I heard about it, and I've been kind of surprised, I keep hearing people go, well, yeah, the accrual is going well. I guess there's just so many people who are eligible that even if the denominator is low, somehow they're getting patients on that study. One thing that I do tell them is I talk to them about the intent to treat analysis, and I say, please, if you're going to say yes to this, you must agree to proceed according to the group that you've been randomized to. Yeah, not get into the old, oh, I got randomized to this, but I don't want to do it. Exactly. You know, the other study that's kind of looking at the same arena is being done in Europe with the MindDeck study and the print assay. Do you know much about that and how that's going? I think they have about 1,000 of the 4,000 patients wow. that they want to accrue. That's kind of a interesting randomization there where they put the numbers in based on adjuvant online. And the number is based on mamoprint. If they're not the same, they get randomized. Right. What do you know about mamoprint itself in terms of what kind of research data is behind it and how it's being used or could be used? I think that from a scientific standpoint, the mamoprint good gene versus poor gene signature is interesting. But from a practical standpoint, I think it's much less user-friendly than the oncotype. I mean, basically, that's the only other thing to compare it to. And with mammoprint, you don't get a spectrum of risk. You get a high-risk, low-risk. Whereas with the recurrence score, you have a spectrum of risk, which helps oncologists and patients, I think, more. Because we know that life isn't black or white. From a practical standpoint, the fact that you can use paraffin-embedded formalin-fixed tissue to do the oncotype, but you need to use fresh frozen tissue or tissue that's processed immediately in the OR for the mammoprint makes it also less user-friendly for the surgeon. But it's nice to have both trials going on, and I think we'll get important information from both of them. I guess it might be a little while, though, until that happens, huh? It will. One of the things that's going on that I mentioned to you that Norm Walmark presented this case to me where he had this woman with a HER2-positive DCIS, and he presented your trial to her that the NSABP is doing looking at trastuzumab, and actually his patient didn't want to go on the study because they were afraid of, you know, the trastuzumab, even though I think it's just, what, two doses? Right. But, you know, he presented it because he really thinks a lot of the trial. And I guess it took a while. I've been, you and I have been talking about that. It seems like for, what, 10 years or something? <laughs> Maybe not that long. But can you talk a little bit about the background for the study and sort of what's being done? So we start with the fact that there are about 55,000 patients a year in this country being diagnosed with DCIS. And the relatively recent research on it indicates that it is in terms of progression of benign breast disease to malignant breast disease, looks more like the 
luminal A, luminal B slash HER2 positive, HER2 negative situation. In other words, it's not as if lesions progress from hyperplasia to atypia to low grade to high grade to invasive cancer. It looks like there are really two kinds of DCIS, the low grade kind, which is often ER positive, and higher grade lesions, which are often HER2 positive. And we also know now that the combination of antibodies targeted toward growth factor receptors with radiation produces a better result than radiation alone. For example, in head and neck cancer, cetuximab is now approved by the FDA concurrent with radiotherapy because of a trial that was very positive. And there's in vitro information that shows that HER2 positive breast cancers are more sensitive to the combination of radiation and Herceptin versus radiation alone. So basically, that's the background. And what we would like to look at is the effectiveness of combining trastuzumab with radiation versus the traditional approach to whole breast radiation and see if we can come up with a better result. Now, when you have a disease that is, quote, almost 100% curable, what benefit are you looking for? The primary endpoint of the trial is local control. And so you're basically looking to preserve more breasts. We don't believe that two doses of Herceptin given to a patient who is healthy is going to have any impact on cardiac health. And obviously, neither does the National Cancer Institute, or they wouldn't have approved the trial. But I can understand how a patient who reads the consent form, which by definition has to include all of the side effects that have ever happened to people receiving Herceptin, might be a little afraid But what she needs to do is have that trial put in context by a doctor who understands the toxicity of Herceptin as a single agent, particularly just two doses of it. Just to be the devil's advocate a little bit, if you were to say this one, well, we're going to see if we can decrease the local recurrence rate by giving these two doses. But the other alternative she could have would be to have a mastectomy. So if you say, would you like to get radiation therapy and trastuzumab or have a mastectomy? I'm not sure how that would play out. I guess a lot of women would maybe want to take a chance and see if they could keep their breast. What do you think? Well, putting aside the issue of trastuzumab in this situation, it's a choice. Lumpectomy and radiation or mastectomy. And most women don't find that choice too difficult to make. They sort of fall into two camps. And for those who want to preserve their breasts, particularly if they have a high-grade HER2-positive lesion where with high grade, we know that the local recurrence rate is higher based on the B24 data, I think it's an attractive option. The other thing that we're looking at in the trial is the opposite breast. So what if two doses of Herceptin actually Mm -hmm. reduce the risk of contralateral breast cancer? In the adjuvant trastuzumab trials, I don't recall that there was fewer second primaries with trastuzumab, were there? I don't think we have long enough follow-up to actually know the answer to that. But when you think about the idea, at least, that at earlier stages of breast cancer prevention, that the tumor will be addicted to perhaps a single pathway or have fewer molecular hits, it's an attractive concept that this might actually be a preventive agent as well. Another thing I want to ask you about was your interest or research involved with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors specifically, or latinib in breast cancer. I kind of haven't been able to figure out what the deal is there. Is it helpful? Is it synergistic? What do we know about that? Well, I think that erlotinib has not been 
studied as well as it could have been studied in breast cancer because it was in the study that was done, it was given to all comers. And that's kind of like giving trastuzumab to all comers. It never would have been approved because it wouldn't have been seen to be active. So we've sort of gone back to the drawing board. We're doing a trial now at Rush. The principal investigator is Dr. Ruta Rao, whose interest is in triple negative breast cancer. And there we're looking at triple negative EGFR positive breast cancer, asking the question, what is the activity of erlotinib as a single agent in metastatic disease? Yeah, that'll be interesting. That's another oral biologic agent that's not necessarily that easy to give. I mean, the good thing is a lot of these things don't cause, you know, and I know you've been involved with research on, I guess, sunitinib too. They don't necessarily cause lethal problems, but it can be pretty irritating. I mean, erlotinib has caused a lot of skin problems, GI problems. Have you had breast cancer patients on it? I have, and it can cause skin problems. It can cause diarrhea, but the patients that I've had on it, when you monitor those side effects and treat them accordingly, they tolerated pretty well. You know, another thing I wanted to ask you about was you had a paper looking at long-term disease-free survival after stopping trastuzumab in patients with metastatic breast cancer. Can you talk about that? Right. So what that paper describes is six patients who had limited metastatic breast cancer mainly local regional disease, but one patient actually did have a solitary lung metastasis who responded beautifully to trastuzumab as a single agent who, for those with local regional disease, received radiation concurrent with the trastuzumab and had no evidence of disease for a long time, on average, say, at least a year, who didn't want to continue treatment. One of them was a patient with a local regional relapse after an inflammatory breast cancer who didn't want treatment at all, and I was able to convince her to try trastuzumab. At any rate, we did discontinue therapy, and several of these patients, including the one with the lung metastasis, by the way, who chose to have radiation, we offered her surgery or radiation, she got radiation, are alive and well to talk about it many years later. The reason for writing that paper is because I have seen many questions at symposia where such cases are presented, and the answer always is the patient has to stay on this drug for the rest of her life. Some of these people are out 10 years now getting weekly trastuzumab or Q3 weekly trastuzumab, and I'm just not sure that it's necessary, particularly in someone with limited metastatic breast cancer. These women, when they had local regional disease, it was not curable. Right. It was primarily true with radiation radiation and trastuzumab concurrently. But not surgery? They weren't surgically resected? Well, the patient with the solitary lung metastasis did not want to be surgically resected. When the radiation oncologist and the surgeon presented her the options and the potential toxicities, she chose radiation. So I just believe that it's an option for patients. But these other patients, it wasn't surgically resected, it was just radiation and trastuzumab. Actually, one of them was a patient who went on the original HO648 trial. So she presented with lymph node negative, HER2 positive, weekly estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. She got a lumpectomy and radiation and tamoxifen. Then she had an in-breast tumor recurrence. She had a mastectomy. Then she had a chest wall recurrence. So this is a previously irradiated field. She went on the randomized trial of chemotherapy with or without Herceptin. 
because she had not had an anthracycline in the adjuvant setting and randomized to chemo, she got AC. And her disease gradually progressed on the chest wall. We couldn't call progression. We had to, there was an independent monitor. So after three cycles, we thought she had progressed, but she had to get another six cycles before they agreed she progressed. And then she flipped over to Herceptin, which was part of the trial. And she just melted into remission. So for about a year and a half, she was traveling to Chicago from Indiana, getting weekly trastuzumab and sort of wondering, how long do we really have to do this? And her disease, to look at the chest wall, it looked entirely normal, but there was a little nubbin, maybe a five-millimeter protrusion in the skin over the scar, and we were trying to decide what should we do. Should we stop? Should we radiate? Should we continue the trastuzumab and radiate? So we biopsied that little thing, and it was her two-positive breast cancer just sitting there. So we gave her more radiation with concurrent trastuzumab, and she was fine for years until she actually relapsed in the brain. Hmm. What do you think about the strategy of using surgery to remove metastatic disease? I mean, the brain, okay, everybody accepts that, but in terms of, say, lung or liver? I really think that's a situation where we need a randomized trial. Does that mean you don't what, do it? what tends to happen is the healthy people tend to get operated and the unhealthy people don't, and being unhealthy correlates with bad breast cancer. So that's a situation that's crying out for a randomized trial. Have I never done it? I have done it in situations where patients have had disease that persists in a localized site despite multiple chemotherapy or hormone therapy regimens. It's almost like it's telling you I haven't learned how to metastasize. And in that situation, I have recommended surgery, but it's rare. I'm going to go back to the issue of oncotype. I was curious what your thoughts were about the presentation at the last San Antonio meeting looking at oncotype in patients in the ATAC study. So now with patients who've gotten an AI, in this case an astrozole, I think that was the first time we saw anything like that. Can you talk about what they reported and what you thought about it? The question was, does the recurrence score, is it prognostic in patients who are on tamoxifen or on an aromatase inhibitor? It turned out that it is. And I think that's terrific because the original indication, if you will, was for tamoxifen-treated patients, but it was always hard for me to imagine that somebody who received an AI would not be in the same situation as far as recurrence or benefit from treatment is concerned because it is an estrogen-related cluster. So it's nice to have that information out there now. We had had that previous data that had been reported looking at node-positive patients. Where are we right now with that? I mean, are there people who have tumors that are node-positive that may be anocotypes indicated? So a secondary endpoint of that trans-attack study was to look at whether the recurrence score was prognostic in node-positive and node-negative patients. They had many fewer node-negative patients, and they excluded the patients who got chemotherapy. And it also was prognostic. It's just that if you have node-positive patients, you have a worse prognosis, a higher recurrence score than if you're node-negative. I have rarely used oncotype in node-positive patients. The situation in which I have used it most often is in someone who has a tiny micromet. 
and the rest of the axillary nodes are negative. And there, I think that those patients really would have been very similar to the original B14 and B20 patients. Node negative. Node negative. I mean, we know there had to be node positive patients in there because we weren't doing sentinel lymph node biopsy at the time. So that's one situation in which I use it. Another one might be in a patient with one to three positive nodes who's adamantly opposed to chemotherapy to sort of give her more courage, let's say. Actually, you know, the question that we got asked the most in this survey of the surgeons was actually, well, I say the systemic question that was asked most. I think there was a ton of questions about imaging in terms of local therapy, but was the issue of the patient with a small node-negative HER2-positive tumor. Can you update us on what we know about that? Should trastuzumab be offered to some of these people? Can you give it without the chemo? Where are we with that? Right, and of course we have virtually no information from the randomized clinical trials. I'm not sure there will ever be a randomized clinical trial. I think what we do know from the Vancouver database and from a paper that was presented at San Antonio is that patients with T1B tumors have a poor prognosis. I'm not sure that we have enough information on patients with T1A tumors. HER2 positive. HER2 positive. It's amazing how little information we have. Right. I think there, I mean, there are thousands of patients out there who must have had that, but I guess we just don't have it. Well, it's a matter of having a decent database that captures everyone. Well, MD Anderson reported this in the, you know, their series at the last San Antonio meeting. Right. That looked pretty impressive in terms of, I think they had like a 23% relapse rate in five years with tumors under a sonometer. Right. The distinction I'm trying to make is that I'm not sure we know about the T1A. Totally. Absolutely. Lesions. Yeah, they didn't have enough patients to break it down, I don't think. Right. Yeah, that's really tricky. Now, I'll tell you about a patient I saw recently, and this is what makes it difficult when you're an oncologist and you see something like this happen. It kind of makes you think a little bit differently. She had a T1A breast cancer. She underwent a lumpectomy and radiation. How big was the tumor? I don't recall exactly how T1A it was, but I know it was T1A. And it was estrogen receptor negative. It was HER2 positive. She got lumpectomy and radiation. And a few years later, she came back just for a routine physical exam. And the breast was just totally abnormal. The nipple was pulled in. It was firm. I said, how long has this been going on? She said, what? And to make a long story short, she had an inflammatory breast cancer in that breast. It was just totally involved. So we gave her TCH. She had a pathologic complete remission. She said, I'm done. I want both breasts removed. I said, you know, really your outlook more has to do with the first side than the second side. Older woman, about 60 years old, but she insisted on having a bilateral mastectomy. And on the other side, she had an occult two-centimeter estrogen receptor positive, HER2 negative. Wow. (laughs) Breast cancer. Two centimeters? Yeah. Jeez. Infiltrating Hmm. lobular. So anyway, when you see something like that happen, it kind of makes you feel like you should at least offer treatment to patients with T1As if they're healthy. In terms of giving trastuzumab as a single agent, I don't think that I would do that because we have zero information on that. So if you're going to go for it, I say go for what we know works, which would be combining chemotherapy with trastuzumab. 
And I guess people are thinking about, actually, because it's being studied, just paclitaxel alone with the trastuzumab, TC, docetaxel, cyclophosphamide with trastuzumab, trying to find less toxic chemo regimens to pair the trastuzumab with. Right. What do you tend to use? You know, I tend to use TCH because that's where the data are, and so I feel more comfortable with that. Now, having said that, if we get to cycle four and the patient is really beat up, I'm not sure that I would feel bad about eliminating cycles five and six. I guess the last thing I'll ask you about is the issue of having quality assays for ER and HER2 done on their patients and the challenge of that. It's kind of a disturbing situation. What's your take right now, and how do you view that issue in terms of how can somebody in practice decide whether or not their patients are getting ER and HER2 assays done correctly? I think you just have to know your pathologist. And when you have a clinical situation that doesn't make sense, you need to have it sent for a second opinion. But I really like the fact that the genomic health people are reporting the actual levels because I always look at our reports when I get that report back, and it reassures me when I have an ER-positive, HER2-negative patient that it's that way in their report as well. So I think it's very, very helpful. We've heard a bunch of cases, too, where, you know, the specimen goes to GH and the specimen goes for an archetype and they go, oh, she's not ER positive. Or, oh, you know, she's actually HER2 positive. Have you had that happen at all? Not yet. Yeah, they're out there, I guess. But the other thing is in terms of HER2, I mean, you have two different biologic therapies that can really lower the relapse rate significantly. So it's pretty important to try to get it right. We've been interacting with Antonio Wolf, who was the head of the ASCO CAP panel looking at HER2. Also Mike Press, who's done so much work with HER2. And, you know, I come away thinking that maybe there's questions in terms of HER2, not just with IHC, which we've known for a while, but also with fish. Have you heard about that? Well, there certainly are reports of patients who were fish positive, but actually ended up being fish negative on central review. So it's like anything else. It's a technique, and probably if you do it often, you do it better. Although it was interesting, Dr. Press was telling me about this study that was being done that he was involved with, and it was actually looking at lapatinib for the surgeons, you know, the oral anti-HER2 agent. And they had a large reference lab that was doing a lot of the HER2s. And they started to look at the numbers, and they didn't look right. And it turned out that, like, the technician was actually running it, not a doctor, doing the counting, that the procedure was totally broken in this large lab. And it was really scary. And that, you know, when they went back and put it into press lab, they got different answers. So it's kind of considering how important it is to know about the HER2 status. That's kind of bothersome to hear about. I think people kind of think, well, maybe I do IHC and fish, or if I do fish, I'm safe. Well, I think that you have to have a quality control program in place, and a machine will never replace a human being, and a technician will never replace a pathologist. Yeah, when I listen to him explain, you know, when you talk to the pathologist, or like also Craig Allred's talked about how they process tissue and how people who get ER done on Friday have lower levels than Tuesday because it sits over the weekend or something. It's really something maybe that tumor boards could be discussing. We have the surgeon, medical oncologist, and pathologist there to hopefully make sure their patients are getting the right assays. 
Right. Anything you want to add to anything you said today? Well, I think that as far as the recent San Antonio meeting was concerned, the papers that I appreciated most in the sense that I came away sort of learning something that I hadn't appreciated before were the papers that had to do with breast cancer risk and individualized assessment of risk. So the studies by the Mayo Clinic showing that when you start out with atypical hyperplasia, that the Gale model doesn't necessarily help you much beyond that because you've already incorporated family history and environmental exposure, et cetera, into that biopsy. And the idea that you can actually look at residual normal tissue to help stratify patients into high risk and low risk based on lobular involution. And then the paper by Cusack looking at mammographic changes in patients on the IBIS-1 trial showing that if within 18 months your mammographic density decreases, that those are the patients who benefit tremendously from tamoxifen. I thought those were really eye-opening. Yeah, that thing about mammographic density, it seems like it pops up and down in different kinds of ways and studies, but is that something that you actually are bringing into your high-risk clinic? That is something that I am talking to our, actually, as far as the lobular involution goes, to our breast pathologists about, and uh, as far as the mammographic changes to our mammographers. I didn't realize until that educational session that in terms of predicting risk, that the Gale model is pretty lousy for patients with atypical hyperplasia. Hmm. And the idea that the patient could be bringing with her to you the clues <laughs> to whether or not she needs an intervention or how helpful an intervention is going to be in her, kind of like people getting hot flashes when they take tamoxifen adjuvant therapy or joint pain when they go on an AI you know, if your mammogram is getting less dense on tamoxifen, those are good things you can inform patients about. I just think that's fascinating. I guess, too, we're waiting for the NSABP B35 study to come out with data that's been closed for a while comparing tamoxifen to anastrozole in postmenopausal women with DCIS. What do you think that's going to show? That's Richard Margulies, the PI, and I'm guessing that it's going to show that AIs are better, but it's not something that I'm doing currently until I actually know the answer. I wonder how that would play out in terms of, you know, if it showed what we think it would show, fewer breast cancers, second breast cancers, or primary breast cancers, and the side effects and toxicity ratio that we've sort of come to expect compared to tamoxifen and particularly the side effects issue with more you know, sensitivity about the arthrologists and stuff. Do you think with those kinds of numbers there would be a lot of AIs used for prevention or people would back off? I think if it's a more effective medication that you would want to start with an AI. But I mean, right now I don't think there's much tamoxifen being used in postmenopausal women for prevention, or is there? There's this algorithm that came out a few years after the P1 trial that talks about if you're between 50 and 60 and you don't have a uterus, it's, you know, the ratio falls on the side of benefit. Once you get over 60, and particularly if you have a uterus, there's less of it used. But again, it depends upon the risk as well. We'll see. The other thing that I thought was interesting was the Big 98 study, the comparison of, I think most people would agree now that you should start with an AI, but when you compared starting with the AI and switching to tamoxifen, 
versus the AI, there really wasn't a difference there. It was just if you start with tamoxifen and you switch to the AI. So two to three years of an AI and then switching to tamoxifen did not, at least at that point in follow-up, appear to be an inferior strategy. The reason why that's important is this donut hole that people fall into. And the AIs are four times as expensive as tamoxifen. So I'm not sure how many of our people who fall into that donut hole are even taking all of their medication as they should be. That's a really good point, although I kind of wondered, and I think a lot of people wondered, whether there were enough events and patients to really say there was no difference in those two strategies. When you looked at the from the beginning trial, there was a separation in the curves immediately in the first few years, whereas in the switch there wasn't. 